I'm reading from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brother brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if, jo- what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. this morning, and uh, we appreciate not just your musical gifts, but your hearts, and so thank you for leading us, worshiping, now we come to God's word. This is really the same act. Worship and preaching are the same thing, worshiping God, knowing him. And this morning, I have a very simple message for you, and it's the fifth message in a little series that we've been doing called Five Truths That You Can Build Your Life On to Start the New Year. And the truth this morning is your story matters to God and it matters to the world. Your story matters. And I want to start by making an observation. God is a storytelling God. The God that we serve is a storyteller. Think about this. This is why the Bible's so long. Because there are so many stories that God is telling through his people. You know, I wondered sometimes, why did God design things the way he did? Why, for example, Isn't it the case that when you become a Christian, you immediately just go straight to heaven? Wouldn't that be cool? You just become a Christian, and all of a sudden, you're in heaven. You're perfected. You're with God forever. Why wasn't it that when God wanted to get the Israelites out of Egypt, he didn't just teleport them to the promised land? Why didn't he do that? Forty years of wandering. And we know God can teleport because there's an instance of it in Acts 8. And if you get bored during the sermon, look it up. Philip is teleported in Acts 8. And you know that God has the power to do it. But why doesn't he? You know, for example, when we go through difficult times in our life and we know that God's going to get us through, why doesn't he just snap his fingers and change things and bring us to the end? Because God is a storyteller. There's certain things that God can only do in your life through the length of time it takes him to tell the story that he wants to tell through you. There's actually things in us. The New Testament talks about this all the time. Perseverance and hope that can only come by slowly and patiently enduring through the story. Now, God is a storyteller, but we are also storytellers. We are wired, hardwired to learn, to celebrate, to enjoy through stories. Think about this. If you get a bunch of people together that you've known for a long time, but you haven't seen in years, what do you do? You get together and you tell stories either about the olden days when you were all together or what's happened in between, but you tell stories. What do you do if you want to be entertained? 
You go to the movies or you watch TV, and what's on there? Not pieces of data, stories. If you want to explain something to someone and they're not quite getting it, what do you do? You tell them a story. You were made by a storytelling God with a storytelling heart, and we live in a story. You know, one of the New Testament commentators named N.T. Wright put it this way, the Jews, by the time of Christ, at the most fundamental level, believed that they were in a story in search of an ending. They believed that they were in a story in search of an ending. This is the story of God's people throughout all of history. They realize that they are in a story that God is telling, but they don't know exactly how the story is going to end. Now, we have a few more chapters than the Jews did in the first century. We know a little bit more about the story, but we're actually also in a story that's looking for an ending. Your life is looking for an ending, and some of the tension in our lives comes from wondering, what ending is God orchestrating for my life? So my goal this morning is really simple. Number one, to show you from the Bible that your story matters, that what God is doing in you individually matters. And second, to encourage you to tell it, to encourage you to tell your story. So in order to do that, if you've got your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 50, I want to look at one of the stories that God tells in the Bible, and it's one of the longest continuous stories that he tells in the Bible. It's the story of Joseph. And you may have wondered if you've ever read Genesis before, in the opening chapters, you cover so much time. You get all the way from creation to the flood, hundreds of years pass, then you get to all the stories about Abraham and his family, and you get to chapter 37, and the story completely skids to a halt. In fact, the next 14 chapters are about this one person's life. It's one of the longest, most in-depth, most detail-rich stories in the Bible. And I wanted to spend some time on this story because this is the kind of story that God loves to tell. The story of Joseph is one of those stories you could never, ever make up. Even if you got the most creative writers in a room together, you could never make up a story quite like the story of Joseph. And I want to zoom out for a minute and look at his story to say, this is how God likes to tell stories in our life. So you may identify with parts of Joseph's story or others, or you may say this is not too similar, but there's themes that run through his story that run through every single one of our stories. So I want to tell it by looking at it from the end. So at the very end of the story, what we read today, Joseph is the most powerful person in the world next to Pharaoh. He is over all of Egypt. He is over all of their agriculture and economics. He is personally powerful. He has a title. He is uh, he has a family that he comes from that is the least powerful people in the world that are begging him for food, and he gives them food, provides them shelter, gives them a place to live, and God moves his people from where they were to a safe and secure place in Egypt. But it took a lot to get there. And so let's imagine for a moment that we are up in the mind of God before the story of Joseph begins. And of course, I'm being a little facetious here because we don't know exactly how God deliberates on these things. This, the mind of the Lord is something that we cannot fathom in how it works. But let's say, just to understand this, we get to look over God's shoulder at the story of Joseph. So the story opens, Joseph comes from a line of people, starting with Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob, who have been worshiping God, they have been sojourners, but they have been promised 
a land. And not just that, they have been promised a heavenly father and ruler, God, the God of Israel. And God wants to do something with this group of people. He's already promised to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless the entire world through you. But there's strife in this family. In fact, if you've ever read the book of Genesis and you look at what happens in this family, this has got to be one of the most dysfunctional families in the history of the world. In fact, when we open our story today, so Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob... Uh, he has two wives that he gets tricked into marrying, and they are having a childbearing competition between the two of them. Talk about an icy home life. So God opens and closes wombs. There's infighting. The kids don't like each other. And Joseph is one of the younger ones, and he is the favorite child. In fact, his father doesn't even try to hide how much he loves this son to the to the exception of all the others, he gives him this coat, the Technicolor dream coat that he wears that signals, this is my favorite son. Well, as you can imagine, this does not go over well with the brothers. And the brothers hate, they despise Joseph. And it's in this environment that God begins telling the story of Joseph's life. So think about this from the end. What are God's goals at the end of this story? God says, I want to get my people to Egypt to feed them because a famine is coming. Okay, how do you get the people to Egypt? Well, what God decides to do is he orchestrates it so that his brother's hatred finally boils over, and they decide, we're going to kill our brother Joseph. And Reuben, who's one of the older brothers, says, let's, let's not kill him. Let's just leave him for dead. And his other brother Judah says, if we leave him for dead, we gain nothing. Let's sell them. So they find a group of Bedouins that are coming by, some Midianites, and they sell Joseph to the Midianites. And the Midianites take him to Egypt. Step one complete, Joseph in Egypt, the first of many who are going to come to Egypt. Now, God's saying, you know, it's not just that I want my people in Egypt. I actually want to provide for them. So what am I going to do? I, I, I need somebody who knows how to run things in Egypt. So when the Midianites get to Egypt, they sell Joseph to a man named Potiphar. And Potiphar is a kingly official. He's a powerful person. He has a big household. And he hires Joseph, and he quickly realizes that Joseph, who is probably about 20 at the time, has some real aptitudes for management. So he begins to put him in charge of his house. And Joseph, actually, this is a great story in and of itself. Joseph rises up. He is the second in command to a high-ranking official. He is over a big house. But this isn't what God has for him. In fact, it's going to be really hard for Joseph to be ruling over Egypt if he's in Potiphar's house. So God actually says, I, I don't just want Joseph to be well off. I don't just want him to have power. I want him to create a place for my people. Got to get Joseph into Pharaoh's household. So how do you do that? Well, he doesn't just apply for a job. In fact, he has a run-in with Potiphar's wife. And Potiphar's wife loves Joseph, but he doesn't love her back. In fact, he says there's one thing in the household that, that Potiphar has not given me any authority over, and that is his beloved wife. 
But the wife won't have this. And so you know how the story goes. One day she tempts Joseph and he runs out, but he leaves his garment behind and she accuses him of making a move on her. Well, Potiphar is not happy about this and he sends him to prison. But if you notice in the text where he goes, this is in Genesis chapter 38, or in 39. He puts him in the king's prison. He puts him in the king's prison. Now, I want to pause in the story for a moment and say, this is not how any of us would have orchestrated this story. How do we get Joseph where we want him to be? Let's have him be falsely accused by someone and thrown into prison to get him into Pharaoh's household. That's not the way we tell stories. That's not the way we would think about doing this. But what God is doing is so much more complex than what we would do in this situation. And when you, when you look at Joseph's life, it's either a good story or a bad story, depending on where you pop in in the middle. Potiphar's house, great story. Look at what happened to Joseph. He went from being sold out of a pit to Potiphar's house. But you don't realize, if you're in the moment, that this is actually a fraction of what God wants to do through Joseph. And the only way that God's going to bring that about is he has to go from Potiphar's house to prison. And then he has to go from prison to Pharaoh's household. And this is the way our story goes. There are things that God wants to do in our lives that are absolutely impossible to do when we are in the current, great, feel-good position that we are in now. In fact, it's going to take something that is such a reverse that it seems like going from the household to the prison in order for God to put the things in you that you're going to need for what he has for you later. See, this is something that we all have to grapple with. God is telling a story in your life that involves suffering. It involves unknowns. It involves being tried and tested. And we as Christians know that the end of the story is being with God forever, but in the middle, we don't know what God's going to do, and so we have to trust him. I mean, can you imagine what it felt like for Joseph feeling like he had made it and then falsely accused, now he was back worse off than he had ever been before? And some of us are in Potiphar's house right now, some of us are in the king's prison right now. Some of us are actually in Pharaoh's household right now. But God is telling the same story of redemption through each person. So Joseph isn't just going to be the ruler over Egypt. He isn't just going to provide for his people. God's going to do something in him to make him the kind of person who could be in Pharaoh's household and also steward his opportunities for the people of God. So God says to himself, I, I don't want Joseph just to become the prince of Egypt or the ruler of Egypt. I want him to be a person that never quits. I want him to be a person that never gives up. So in the middle of the dungeon, the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him. Look at chapter 39. In verse 22, it says, the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The Lord made it succeed. This is in prison. This is where Joseph had to go to realize that God was never going to give up on him. This is where he had to go to realize that if he would continue to do what God called him to do, God would continue to provide for him. You know, God did something else in his story that would, that would make him the kind of person who perseveres. He gave him these dreams. 
Do you remember this? At the beginning of Joseph's life as a kid, one of the things that got him in trouble with his brothers is he has these dreams. And the dreams, if you think about this as a teenage kid with all of his brothers, his dreams are so offensive to his brothers. Because the dreams are basically, he says, there are all these sheaves of wheat, big sheaves of wheat, and all of them were bowing down to me. And he's like, and I think the sheaves of wheat are you guys. And the brothers, it says they hate him in their heart. And then he has another one. All the stars and the sun and the moon are bowing down to me. And these brothers are like, this guy is a piece of work. This is what happens when you spoil your kids, okay? So he says the moon, the stars, the sun are going to bow down to me. They think, what an ego trip. But God was planting something in him that was going to be true later. But it didn't happen for dozens of years. In fact, we don't see him doing this again until he is in the prison. And all of a sudden, there's a cupbearer to the king. And the cupbearer says, I've got this dream that I can't figure out what it means. And something that God had put in Joseph years before that reawakens at just the right moment. And he interprets the dream of this cupbearer. And he says, remember me when you get out of here. Well, God wasn't just after promoting Joseph. He was after forging Joseph. So do you remember what happens after this? The guy forgets. The guy forgets. And he gets out, and he doesn't remember Joseph until there's a time when the Pharaoh is having this dream that he needs interpreted. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer says, there's a guy in the king's prison who can interpret this dream. See, God could have done that at the very beginning, but Joseph wouldn't have been the same person he was by God telling the story all the way through. By the time that Joseph goes before Pharaoh, he's the kind of person who trusts God, who doesn't give up, who knows that God has a plan for him, who knows that God will provide for him. And so he goes before Pharaoh not as somebody who needs Pharaoh, but as somebody who loves God. And in fact, he's not going to be able to do what God calls him to do afterwards if he's not that kind of person. And that kind of person is only made in suffering. So Joseph goes before the Pharaoh, and the Pharaoh has a dream of seven cows standing on the Nile that are eaten by fat cows. Now, or they eat the fat cows. And to us, this is like, I could interpret this dream. This is not a very difficult dream. You have skinny cows eating fat cows, there's going to be a famine. Okay, the skinny cows win. He tells him his dream. Pharaoh is amazed, so amazed that he puts him over all of his grain in Egypt. Now, Joseph is a great manager. He'd learned this in Potiphar's house. He'd had on-the-job training years before this to be ready for this specific task that God had given him. And he arranges things so that they are storing grain for the entire world to eat. Now, there's one more thing I want to point out. Not only has God brought Joseph to Israel, not only has he brought him up through all of these travails into Pharaoh's house, not only has he given him a spot where he can now feed the people that he wants to feed, there's a deeper need and a deeper wound in Joseph's life than just the famine. His brothers are desperate. Their crops have failed. Things are not going the way that they wanted them to go. And so they come to Egypt. They have no idea where Joseph is or what happened to him. They come to Egypt desperate for food. And they get a meeting with an Egyptian official, official who's in charge of the grain stores. And they start to make their pitch before, unbeknownst to them, Joseph. And in that moment, Joseph has a big decision to make. 
These people sold him, tried to kill him, sold him. And now their life is in his hands. What is he going to do? What is he going to do? How does this part of the story end? It would have been so easy for Joseph to rationalize revenge. And if not revenge, at least unforgiveness. But his brothers come before him, and he immediately recognizes them. And he immediately knows exactly what God wants him to do. In fact, when we arrive at the end of our story, he's tested them a couple of times because he wants them to bring all the kids and all the family and his father all to Egypt. So he tests them. He puts a cup in the bag of the youngest and keeps him as ransom. And then they all come in at the very end of the story that Belinda read for us. His father, Jacob, dies. And now the brothers think the time is up. We're going to get what we deserve. But God didn't just want any ruler in Israel. He wanted a forgiving ruler. And if you think back at Joseph's life, he arranged it perfectly. I I want a ruler who hasn't forgotten what it's like to be in the dungeon. I want a ruler that hasn't forgotten what it feels like to be falsely accused. I want a ruler who understands what it's like to be given up on by humanity, but to be um, surrounded by the power and the presence of God. And what God produced in the Joseph story is someone who the banner over his life doesn't appear until the very last lines of his story. But this is the theme of Joseph's entire life. Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. What an incredible story to produce a person like that, in a place like that. A person who's willing to forgive the worst thing that anybody could do to them because he trusts that God is more than whatever they could have done to him in the past. See, the message of the story of Joseph is that God is telling a story that culminates in him providing for us, in him getting the glory in our lives, in him being the thing that we trust in, in him being the one who brings us to him forever. Those are God's priorities in your story. Everything that happens in your life is for the ultimate goal of the big story that God is telling, to reconcile all things in Christ. Every part of our story is a sub-story. It's a sub-theme in the story of God, which is if you trust in Christ, he is reconciling every part of your life into his family. And so just looking at the Joseph story should clue us in that it's not going to go the way we think it's going to go. There are things that God's going to do in your life that in the moment you have no idea what this could ever bring. How could this possibly be for good? How could this ever end up in a way that I'm thankful looking back for what God has done in my life now? But as we see, the theme of Joseph's life is only at the end. It's only at the end. And sometimes we get little glimpses of what it might be that God is doing. And those are awesome moments when you look back temporally and think, oh, that was such a terrible season, but now I can see what God was doing. Sometimes he gives us little intermediate glimpses of that, but the full fulfillment of your life won't be until you're standing before God and you're welcomed into his presence and you think to yourself, every moment led to this. Every moment was worth forming me into the person who can worship and glorify and enjoy God forever. And so we tell our stories with the end in mind. 
Like I said, God is telling the same story in you that he is everybody else, bringing you through his son, if you trust in him, back to himself. So my question is, what story is he telling through you, and how are you going to tell it? And so I have four points to apply this to encourage you to tell your story. Here's how we tell our stories. Number one, know the power that your story has. Know the power that your story has. Now, you might think, yeah, I'm just not really tracking with this. I mean, some people have great stories. Not me, really. I don't really have, I have a pretty ordinary life. God hasn't done anything big spectacular in my life. It's just kind of faithfulness and then a kind of uh, wanes and then I'm back and I've just been kind of muddling through and God hasn't done anything spectacular. But the problem with thinking that way is we don't measure God's story by what would make a great movie. We measure God's story by what he says he's doing in your life. And that is something we see in Revelation chapter 12. So in chapter 12 of Revelation, we get the end of the story for every person's life. Like we talked about last week, people come before him, they've come out of the tribulation, they're praising him, and they're saying, we give thanks to God, and God's temple is open, and people are welcomed back in. And in the final battle, there's this really interesting line in in chapter 12, verse 11. It says that the, the enemy is thrown down, and the salvation and power and kingdom of God and authority of Christ are reigning. And there's these people that John sees, and it says, and they conquered the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimonies. The word of their testimonies. Do you realize that your testimony, which means a witness, right? We think of testimonies as how you came to Christ, which is is true, but a testimony can actually be anything that we give witness about what God is doing in our life. Did you realize that your testimony is one of the things that God has ordained to triumph over the enemy forever. Now, how could that be? How could that be that an ordinary person like me can take part in triumphing by my testimony? Think about this. What does the enemy love to do? He loves to accuse. In fact, that's what the word Satan means, the accuser. Before God, day and night, he accuses people. Of sin. And you know what? He's usually right. He's usually right. He knows all the things that you've done. He knows all the reasons that you're not worthy of God's love. He knows all the things that should keep you out of heaven. But he doesn't know how the story ends. See, here's how you triumph over the enemy is by saying, I wasn't good enough. And I didn't live up to what God called me to do. But God sent his son because he loved me so much and he paid for my sins and made me righteous and made me stand before God. And now I come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the enemy has nothing to say. Nothing to say. They triumphed over the enemy because what God does is he takes people who should be unworthy of his love and he makes them worthy. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And you read that verse and you say, how can you be more than a conqueror? How can you be more than a conqueror? Well, it's because of this verse. These people conquer over the evil one and then reign with God forever. See, a conqueror just defeats something or defeat someone. But what happens to us is, as we are defeating sin, as the Holy Spirit is transforming us, we are like a precious metal whose flaws get burned and beaten out as we go through 
trials. So you are more than a conqueror in the sense that you come through the trial even godlier, even holier, even more dependent than you were before. It's not just that you made it through, it's that God made something out of you while you were there. That's the story that defeats the enemy. So when we tell our testimonies, we are joining in with the power of this story that defeats the evil one because you say no accusation stands against the people of God. Actually, my inadequacy was the only thing I brought, and God turned me into something beautiful. Number two, share the gospel through your story. So this is, this is something that can get confusing. Your story is not the gospel. Okay, so just the fact that I came and God got my attention and I turned my life over to him, that's, that's not the gospel. That's my telling of how I encountered the gospel. What we need to do is we need to be good at telling our stories with a subjective part and an objective part. So the objective part is the part that doesn't change at all. And this, there's a great example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's telling his story to the Corinthians. And in fact, the whole letter of 1 Corinthians is just one long argument from Paul about how to live a godly life. And he gives us this amazing template for how to tell your story with the gospel. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. And in verse 3, for I delivered to you of first importance what I received. This is the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and the twelve and five hundred others. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died, he rose from the dead, he's reigning forever. That is the gospel. Sins have been paid for because of his blood on the cross. The gospel is true whether you or I have ever lived or never lived. It is objective. That's what Christ did for us. That is the gospel. But we also have a subjective part of the gospel story. Listen to what Paul says. So he appears to all these people and to James and to the apostles in verse 8. Last of all, he appeared to me. Last of all, he appeared to me. As one untimely born, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not in vain. I work harder than anyone but the grace, through the grace of God that is within me. So what Paul shows us how to do is to say, this is what God has done, and this is what he did in me. This is what the gospel is. And then he brought it home. He brought it to my life. What Paul does is he blends being able to say, this is what God did, and he can do it for you, and let me tell you how he did it for me. This is the way to tell your story. This is in, in fact, this is the best way to evangelize. And I would say in, in the church today, we're very unsure about evangelizing because we're very unsure about any blanket statement that claims to be true no matter what. And the best way to evangelize is to say, this is what God has done. Now let me tell you how I experienced it. And when you're able to talk to somebody about your life, your story, how you have been changed, what God has done in your heart, what you've been through for God. When you tell a Joseph kind of story, look at how God orchestrated this to bring me to himself. That's the way we share our faith. And I would say a lot of us sit there and we say, I'm just not good at doing that. I just, I don't know all the details. I'm worried I'm going to get a question maybe they ask that's going to stump me and I'm going to make God look bad. And I'm worried that if I have to put myself out there, maybe they'll never talk to me again. And I would say the easiest way to share the gospel, the easiest way to share your story is to actually care about it. 
Because you will talk about what you care about. We do it all day, every day. We talk about things that are so insignificant. Movies we like, shows that we like, things that we like to wear, food that we like to eat, that we care about a little bit, but we don't really care about them. But we're going to offer that up to anybody who asks. But then when it comes to something that we care about deeply, we're afraid to talk about it. And so what I would say is most of us need to spend some time thinking about why is it that what God is doing doesn't regularly come up in conversation? Because if you have a conversation with someone about what really means something to them, their faith should come up. And for us, I'm not saying it's that we don't have a faith, it's that we haven't integrated how deeply our faith affects us. If it is reorganizing our hearts on the level of our desires and our passions, that we used to love ourselves and now we love God, or we used to be striving after things that would make us look good, but now we want to bring glory to God, any time you get below the surface, that should start to come up. So we become experts in talking about what we really care about, and the gospel follows. The gospel follows. Number three, make God's grace the high point. Make God's grace the high point. You guys have probably all been in a situation like this before, but I always was very hesitant to bring people in to share their testimony with youth when I was a youth pastor because they would spend about 20 minutes of their time talking about how fun it was before they became a Christian, and then about three minutes talking about what it was like when they did become a Christian. And you know what you have to do after that? Damage control. Because the thing that a kid takes from that testimony is, man, sinning is fun. That person had a wonderful life, and then they became a Christian. That's the message that we implicitly tell when we don't make God's grace the high point of the story. People come in and they share these testimonies, and the high point is the sinning. And it's like, of course sinning is fun, or people wouldn't do it. But if you tell your story that way, what are people going to take away? Man, I had such a great life, and now I'm trying to hold it together for God. That's, that's not a testimony. That's not a testimony. Make God's grace the high point. What has God transformed in you? And I don't mean you can't mention sin. I just mean, what has God done to change you? What has he done through his grace to take you from where you were and to bring you where you are now? Make God's grace the high point. I think of when Zach Shimmer came here and shared his testimony and how he couldn't help but talk about he was captive through drugs and alcohol and he was free in Christ. And having known him for long enough, you got to hear just a few minutes, but having known him for long enough to see that transformation, it's not a trade I would ever make to go back for any of that in his life. You can see that he is a trophy of the grace of God. Think about what a trophy is. A trophy in and of itself is not that valuable. But it points to something that by nature of the fact that it has a trophy is enduringly valuable. Why do you get a trophy? So that you can point to something that happened. You can point to when you won, you conquered, you came together as a team, you overcame adversity, and you did something. Your life is a trophy of God's grace, pointing to something that God did that will matter for eternity. So when you tell your testimony, when you share what's going on in your life, when you talk about what God is doing, make sure you present your life as the trophy that you actually are. You were bought at an infinite cost to God to be reunited with him. So we make God's grace the high point of our stories. Number four, start with those you're close to. Start with those you're close to. 
these could be the, easy, these could be the hardest people to talk to about what God's doing in your life because they know you too well. They've seen all of the story. And I preached on this a couple of months ago, so I know most of you know this story, but I'll never get over the story in Mark chapter 5 of the guy who's been demon-possessed. And Jesus comes across the sea, and he gets out of the boat, and this guy comes screaming at him, and he's been living among the tombs, and he's cutting himself with potsherds, and he is just totally, absolutely crazy. And Jesus calls out the legion of demons that's in this man. And the next time you see him in the story, he's sitting, he's clothed, he's in his right mind, and the people from the town come out, and they cannot believe this. And in fact, they ask Jesus to leave because of how radical the transformation is in this guy's life. And so what happens is these people had been really mean to this guy. They tried to bind him up with chains. They had moved him out of the city. He lives in a graveyard. And so when Jesus healed him, he thought, all right, this is it. I'm going with Jesus. And so they get ready to get back on the boat, and the disciples pile into the boat, and Jesus stops this guy. And he says, no, 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 you're not going with us. And I can just imagine, this is the part that's not in the text. I can just imagine that guy being like, what? You're going to leave me with these people? Do you know what these people did to me? And Jesus says to him, I want you to tell them all that God has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. I want you to tell everybody what God has done for you. See, Jesus couldn't allow him to get back on the boat because he had a mission for him on that side of the shore. He couldn't allow him to get on the boat because he had a story to tell to all the people that he knew, the hardest people to tell. He could have been a sensation in Jerusalem if he had come and told that story. But actually, God had a mission for him that was specific to that region. It was specific to his friends and his family and his cousins and the people he used to work with. It was specific for the people that have watched him degenerate into madness. And Jesus says to him, go and tell what God has done for you. It's easy to think that maybe God put you in the wrong spot. It'd be easier to tell other people in another spot. It'd be easier if instead of me, you guys had Tim Keller or somebody like that. But sorry, the story God's telling is you're the person. You're the plan. There's nobody that has your same story. There's nobody that has your same experience. And God doesn't make mistakes. He put you in your family. He put you in this town, in this church, in your company, so that you can tell how God has had mercy on you to those people. God doesn't make mistakes with your story. So start with the people close to you, as hard as that is, because those are the people that God puts you around to reach for him. Start by telling people you're close to, and then see how God uses your story to change the world around you. So I want to conclude this morning with two questions. If God is a storyteller, and he's telling a story through you, what kind of story is he telling? Where are you in the story right now? What kind of story is he telling through your life? What part of the grand story are you getting to play? And then the second question is, what will you do with it? What will you do with it? You've been given a wonderful gift in God being involved in your life. What are you going to do with your story? Let me pray. Father, I know that even as I say this, There are a lot of people who feel like you're not writing their story. Lord, I know that as we talk about Joseph, it's easy to say for him because things worked out great for him in the long run. And Lord, even as we tell these stories about our own lives, sometimes we're really not sure how they're going to end. 
So Father, I pray this morning you would do something in our hearts that only you can do, which is to draw near and be with us no matter what. Father, I pray as we think about our stories and what you've done and how to talk about your grace in our lives, that you would reveal just a little glimpse of what you have for us. Lord, just a little bit of how satisfied we will be in you forever. Father, by your spirit now, will you remind us that we are never alone, that we are with you. You have come beside us. You have made a home with us, and you will be with us forever. Whether we're in Potiphar's house, whether we're in the dungeon, whether we're over all of Egypt, Lord, you are with us. And that's more important than wherever you've placed us. So, Father, I pray now that through us and through what you've done in our lives, you would give us the words to say to the people around us that many people would come to know you because we took the time to say, let me tell you what God did for me. Father, use our stories. Use our testimonies. Use our encouragement that we give people to bring people to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.